And we are recording. Welcome back to Bible Journey, and thanks for being here. Today we're talking about uh, the book of Acts, chapters 19 to 22, which is um, primarily Paul's third missionary journey. And I've got, uh, I've got a nice uh, little better map here. Um, and the blue line represents Paul's journey. So you can see going from, uh, from, from this area here, Palestine, uh, over to the coast of Turkey, and then we're going to go up into Macedonia and Greece. Now, if you're following along on the chronology, Paul's third missionary journey is roughly the years 53 to 57 in, in the first century. 53 to 57. Um, now, as we begin looking at this part of, uh, of the book of Acts, one question pops up, and the question is, you know, what is the difference between the baptism of John, John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer. By the way, I never capitalized the B in Baptist in John the Baptist because he wasn't a Baptist, like as in the denomination, right? You know, <laughs> So that's why, if you've noticed that. Um, but he's called John the Baptist. Okay, so um, John the Baptist, what's the difference between his baptism and the baptism of Jesus and the apostles? John said, I'm baptizing you with water. But he's going to come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And in some, uh, in some of the, at least one of the Gospels, it says also with fire. And, you know, fire is um, often an image of purification. In this case, I would read or hear sanctification. So the Holy Spirit is the sanctifier, the one who makes holy, the one who purifies. And of course, as you know, uh, earlier in the book of Acts, we saw that the, the, the Pentecost event was described as the Holy Spirit coming like tongues of fire. So the difference between the baptism of John the Baptist and Jesus is that Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And once we get into the ministry of the apostles and we see them baptizing, what we see is that there is the water baptism, and then there is the receiving of the Holy Spirit, which doesn't necessarily always happen at the same time. Sometimes the receiving of the Holy Spirit is separate. The receiving of the Holy Spirit is what we call the confirmation of the baptism. Now granted, sometimes it happens out of order, so you can't be too legalistic about this. But the point is, is that the, um, the Holy Spirit confirms the baptism. And so the confirmation is the receiving of the Holy Spirit. In a way, this is God endorsing what the church does in baptism with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, you know that today we have two separate rites, right? Baptism and confirmation. But originally they were really all one thing in the early church. Now, yeah, in the book of Acts it doesn't always happen at the same time. But when the early church created you know, it's right for baptism based on Jesus' own words, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That right included the confirmation of the baptism, which was the laying on of hands, usually by the bishop, and then that was supposed to at least symbolize, if not actually confer, the Holy Spirit on the person. And so, um, and so we, we originally had one right. Now it gets split later in the history of the church because um, the more we baptize infants, the more uh, it was thought, well, we better wait on the confirmation until this person can make a decision for him or herself. 
Okay, so, um, so having pointed that out, let's take a look at Paul's missionary journey, the third missionary journey. We read that he spends two years in Ephesus, um, three months in the synagogue and the rest in the lecture hall. This is, By the way, this is a first century synagogue or what's left of it. This is not uh, a synagogue in Ephesus. This is Capernaum. But you can kind of see the ruins of the synagogue here. Uh, those columns were not that short. That's, they were toppled and broken, and then they took the capitals and just stuck them on what was left. So it looks like really short columns, but it wouldn't have been like that. Um, but you can see in the back the, the complete columns. You can see this was part of a synagogue from the first century. So Paul spends... Three months in the synagogue and then the rest in the lecture hall. Well, basically because he, he's getting kicked out of the synagogues, right? Um, we also read that because of the miracles the apostles are doing, um, personal effects of the apostles are being kept and in some cases have healing power. And so we read about the first relics of the church which are you know these these hankies or these aprons um, apron probably read like a small towel of the apostles. Now this right here is the original grave marker of Paul's tomb in Rome, and it looks kind of weird because the original grave marker was once uh, you know kind of a complete piece. And then later it was removed and cut up and, and placed on the tomb differently. So this, um, this grave marker goes back at least to the 4th century, if not earlier. And you can see the name Paul, Paolo, this is in Latin, Apostolo, Apostle, and uh, the beginning of the word martyr. So Paul, Apostle, and Martyr. Uh, later on, when his tomb was embellished, by first the Emperor Constantine and then other, other uh, bishops of Rome, the, uh, the marker was taken off and moved and, and then holes were drilled in it. Now, why would people drill holes in the grave marker of the Apostle Paul? And some of them, like, right through the letters. It doesn't seem to make any sense. Well, I'll tell you why. Because... The, because of the tradition very early on in the church that personal effects like hankies and things could be a relic. Now, if you could get Paul's hanky, that would be a relic, right? But a kind of a second-class relic, I guess, would be your own hanky that had touched the tomb of Paul. So what you could do was you could put your hanky or something, some personal effect um, on a string or something, lower it down, touch the tomb of Paul, and bring it back, and now it's a relic because it's touched the tomb of Paul. So where the, you know, this may have originally been you know, upright, it was later put on top, holes drilled in so you could drop things down, or you could drop votive offerings down. And archaeologists find ancient coins and all kinds of things that people dropped in as an offering. And so you can see how this tradition of relics, something that has been touched by or close to an apostle or even the dead body of an apostle, becomes uh, something that people keep 
Some people believe they have healing powers. Others they keep simply for the sake of having a memento of the apostle. So that's this. It is right now. It is in the church of, of Saint Paul outside the walls, which is the church built over the tomb of Paul. Because remember, Paul died in Rome. His tombs in Rome. Church built over the tomb. This was originally on his tomb. Today, though, it's been removed and it's on the wall of the museum in the church. Um, but it's still it's still on that site. So it's kind of up on the wall high. It's bigger than you'd think. It's actually probably about that's about the life size on the screen here. That's about how big it is. So it's still there. So anyway, all that is to say how how early this tradition of relics is. You know, a lot of people think that when the Protestant Reformation sort of abandoned the tradition of venerating relics, that it was because that tradition was relatively new. It had come about in the very superstitious Middle Ages. But that really isn't the case. The tradition goes all the way back to the early church. We see it already in the book of Acts. Uh, you'll see it in the martyrdom of Polycarp where his bones are kept as relics. Um, that's uh, second century. And we can, you can see evidence of it here even on the tomb of Paul. Okay, well, anyway, um, back to our story. You may have noticed that there are people in Ephesus described as disciples, but who are not yet baptized. And already we are beginning the tradition of um, preparation for baptism. We call it catechism, or sometimes we call it RCIA, right? But if you choose to be baptized in the church, you go through a, a time of catechesis or preparation for baptism. Now, by the time of the, uh, you know, like the third century, the, the height of what, what we call the early church, that preparation for baptism could be a three-year catechism. But the point is, is that people have made a commitment already to be baptized, and so here they're considered disciples, even though they haven't been baptized. Um, in the early uh, third century, we have the diary of a young woman named Perpetua, who was martyred for her faith, and uh, she was literally arrested by the Romans along with the rest of her catechism class. So she wasn't baptized yet. Uh, but she's considered a Christian and she considers herself a Christian. So it's just interesting to watch how you know, these, these terms um, like disciple, you know, don't, don't be too sure you know exactly what it means in the early context because here disciples are people who, um, who aren't yet baptized. And as we've already seen, baptism and confirmation may happen in different orders as well. So... Um, the issue then is the commitment to Christ over against the other commitments, even for people who haven't yet been baptized. And in this commitment to Christ, it becomes a, a, a question of loyalty. And we've already seen in the Gospels that, you know, in the story of Jesus and his ministry, the question of loyalty comes up whether one will be loyal to Christ or Caesar. And even at the point of Jesus' passion, what is you know, part of the charge against him? That he claims to be Lord over against Caesar. And what do the people shout when they want him crucified? We have no king but Caesar. So it becomes this, this Christ or Caesar. Um, and by the way, Caesar at the time of the book of Acts is Nero. This is a uh, picture of a statue of Nero that's in a museum in Rome. And um, 
that's, that's probably pretty close to what he looked like. Some statues are iffy, but this one's probably more accurate. Um, it's not a very flattering picture anyway. But um, I just want to point this out so you, so you know that uh, you know, we're in the reign of the Emperor Nero, who is pretty much universally hated as you know, Rome's Stalin or Hitler or something like that. Not even just by the Christians, but even the Romans hated him and thought he was a terrible guy. So much so that when uh, a later emperor who was also a terrible guy comes along, Domitian, everybody calls him a new Nero. So Nero has become sort of proverbial as the bad emperor, even to the, even to the non-Christian Romans. We saw the, the, this loyalty choice in the Gospels as a choice between Christ and Caesar, and that will continue, and that will be the basis on which Christians will be persecuted throughout the early church. But in the book of Acts, it becomes uh, also about a choice between Christ and the demonic or the occult powers. And so we, we meet demons just like we did in the Gospels. And I love when the demons say, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? You know, so these demons have a, a certain uh, uh, intelligence to them, sometimes even outsmarting some people who try to exercise them if, uh, if they're not careful. But the power to exercise the demons is in the name of Jesus. So notice how it doesn't require Jesus himself to be there to cast out a demon. It just requires the name of Jesus. Now, not like a magic word, you know, um, not like you know, just saying the name will do whatever you want um, because it obviously doesn't work that way. But there is power in a name. This is why we see, um, you know, in the Gospels, um, we'll, we'll see Jesus call out, you know, the demons, you know, who are you? What is your name? And, and the demons want to use Jesus' name. In the ancient world, a name has a lot of power. If you use a person's name, it's sort of like claiming a power over them. And I want to point that out because in the book of Acts, conversion to Christianity is described as calling on his name. So um, when you make your commitment to Christ, you are calling on his name. You are associating yourself with him. In fact, you are naming yourself after him because you know now people are starting to be called Christians, followers of Christ, or anointed ones after Christ. And so, so making a commitment to Christ is described as calling on his name. That's, um, that's in chapter 22 for sure. Um, and so, and so there's, this, there's this naming. And you know, there's this long tradition in the Bible of of coming to a turning point in one's life and getting a new name, right? Abram becomes Abraham, Sarai becomes Sarah, Saul becomes Paul, Simon becomes Peter, Jim becomes Christian, right? I get a new name in a sense. And of course now, you know, we we have this long-standing tradition of, of um, you know, baptismal names, uh, right? And so that even sometimes baptism um, is called a christening, Right, getting a new name. So uh, there is power in the name, and the name of Jesus has power over the demons. And when we make our commitment to Christ, uh, we are calling ourselves by a new name. 
Now, where the rubber meets the road here in in the book, and sometimes in our own lives, is when we are called upon to make those commitment choices. Um, Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but, you know, think about it. Have you ever innocently, thinking it's innocent, looked at your horoscope? Um, When you were a kid, did you play with those Ouija boards? Um, There's a lot of things that, that we encounter that might be considered... Uh, innocent or harmless or maybe at worst sort of superstitious. But they're all based on uh, the occult. Uh, occult is a word means means hidden things, secret things, but, but specifically demonic things. So, you know, anything from tarot cards to horoscopes to Ouija boards to the real housewives of... Oh, wait, never mind. Um, <laughs> these are all evil, <laughs> including the real housewives. But you get the idea. And in the book of Acts, what do we see? We see people who burn their magic books as a sign of commitment and as a sign of rejection, choosing the power in the name of Jesus over any other supposed powers. Because that's really what it is. It's a power struggle, isn't it? And we as humans, we instinctively want power. That's human nature. The problem is that when we go after power we are submitting to forces of, you know, a, a, of an evil nature to one dis, uh, level or another, to one extent or another. Real power is in Christ. And so to access that power, we have to submit to it and, and sort of surrender personal power. And that's hard for us to do. But um, I just encourage you to think about what are the magic books in your life? You might not actually have magic books. I hope you don't. <laughs> But uh, you know, what are the things that you have to burn? I'm putting burn in air quotes for those of you listening at home. But um, what, what are the magic books that you have to burn or get rid of in your life? Um, think about that and think about what it would take to get rid of that stuff and focus more on the power that comes from God in Christ. Um, now, in the ancient world, this, this loyalty commitment also becomes very important in the choice of Jesus versus the gods. And in Ephesus, you've already seen this picture, this is Artemis, um, the primary deity of the, uh, the city of Ephesus. Uh, and again, Artemis is uh, the Greek name for the Roman god goddess Diana. She's the twin sister of Apollo. She was the goddess of marital faithfulness, believe it or not, and also uh, the Romans were not good at marital faithfulness. I'm, that's why I say believe it or not. But um, she is also the goddess of childbirth, among other things. Um, so she is sort of the mother goddess. And I hinted last week that in Ephesus, the, uh, the cult of the mother goddess is going to give way to, obviously, the Christian god, the Trinity, but also devotion to the mother of God, Mary. Uh, so we'll talk more about that as time goes on. Um, but the point is, is that Artemis or Diana is the patron deity of Ephesus. So if you disrespect Artemis in Ephesus, you're going to be in big trouble. Um, and so, you know, th- we also encounter this actually in the book of Revelation as well, uh, where John is is encouraging his. Um, people in confronting the uh, the worship of the Greco-Roman gods again in that same part of the world. Um, 
And, and this becomes an economic issue. Did you notice that in the book of Acts? It becomes an economic issue because there is a fear that Christianity is going to be bad for business. Specifically, the businesses of people who make idols and stuff like that. Uh, people who, who, uh, whose jobs support all the pagan banquets. Right? If people stop worshiping the gods, then, you know, it's going to be bad for the economy. That is literally the argument against Christianity. Now, um, Paul writes some of his letters from Ephesus. The letter to the Galatians was written from Ephesus in about the year 54. And, um, oh, by the way, this is the, um, I forgot, this is a drawing of the temple of Artemis as it may have looked in Ephesus. Huge. Um, This is what's left of it. This and this rubble in the foreground, that's the Church of St. John in the background. And this is uh, the House of Mary in Ephesus. So this goes along with what I was talking about, about the the cult of the mother goddess being replaced by devotion to the mother of God. Um, Did Mary actually live in that? Well, yes, the tradition is, now this is not in the text of Scripture per se, but the tradition is that, um, remember, well, it, it is in Scripture that Jesus entrusted Mary, his mother, to John, right? You remember that? He's on the cross, woman, behold your son, man, behold your mother. The tradition says that John and Jesus' mother, Mary, went to Ephesus, where she lived out the rest of her life in Ephesus. And then, of course, later, John is said to have been exiled to the island of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. So, um, and, and you know, that, that whole imagery in the book of Revelation of the woman crowned with 12 stars, this is John, you know, demonstrating this devotion to Mary right in the book of Revelation. But anyway, this, if you were to go to Ephesus, I have never been, I didn't take this picture, but if you were to go to Ephesus, you would, uh, you would go to a site that is supposed to be the house of Mary, and this is uh, what it looks like there. No doubt that statue of Mary was not there when Mary lived there, but <laughs> somebody put that there later, I'm pretty sure. Okay, so just to point out back to the map here, uh, this is the area of Galatia here. And uh, so the the letter to the Galatians is written to Christians in a region, not in a city. Um, Now, in all of Paul's letters, he starts out by thanking his audience for their faith and their good work in spreading the gospel. All of his letters except one, Galatians has no thanksgiving at the beginning of the letter. So that's why I've got this no thanksgiving symbol up there. Um, in fact, there's a, there's a funny story. I, you know, I don't know if you've ever uh, remember that show, Cheers. Remember that show? There was a great, uh, there's a great scene in there where... Uh, the the bartender played by uh, Woody Harrelson is is making a movie this is before videotape I guess making a movie to send back to his family in Iowa to show them his wholesome life in Boston and so but he works in a bar so in the movie they've contrived this thing where he walks into the office of the bar in the back and there is the bartender Sam uh, sitting reading his Bible and uh, pretends to be startled oh I didn't see you come in. And then he says, I was just reading Paul's letter to the Galatians. Those darn Galatians, will they ever learn? <laughs> it's like, you know, they must have had some consultant on this because he got it right because Galatians is the one letter where Paul is kind of upset with the Galatians and doesn't bother to start out with a thanksgiving. 
It's also in Galatians that Paul has to defend his authority as an apostle because the letter to the Galatians is the one where we meet, um, remember that, that circumcision party, the, the, the faction of people who are promoting circumcision. Well, they're, they've been to Galatia and they're stirring up trouble and they're, they're stirring up trouble for Paul because the people, they're starting to encourage the, the people to um, question Paul's authority as an apostle. After all, Paul wasn't there during Jesus' ministry. And so, in the letter to the Galatians, we get Paul's resume. Um, born a good Jew, raised a good Jew, etc. And, uh, and, and a Pharisee, and with the education that goes with that and everything. And so, so here Paul has to defend his authority and his autonomy relative to the other apostles. So we've got this interesting, between Galatians and the Corinthian letters, we've got this interesting interplay between, on the one hand, Paul is saying, I don't need any other apostle to send me. I was sent by Jesus on the road to Damascus. So I am an apostle just as much as those guys. But then, on the other hand, I'm the least of the apostles because I'm the last one to come on board and the things I teach are consistent with the things they teach. So don't think I'm teaching a different gospel from Peter and James. I'm not. And he, he basically admits that he got the tradition from them. Things like the Eucharist, right? And, um, and so, you know, he's, he's kind of playing both sides of that, but he needs to demonstrate that he's consistent with the other apostles because then what he's going to say is, these Judaizers, they're the ones who preach a different gospel. They're the ones who preach a gospel of laws and works. And that's not the gospel we apostles preach. So that's what's going to be the, meth- the message of the letter to the Galatians. Um, and he says, yeah, is that a question, Sandy? Last week, I asked the question, how did Paul become a Roman citizen? Yeah. Okay, so Paul is They were they were still free to to follow their Jewish religion. Um, they they would not um, as Jews they would not be expected to necessarily participate in all of the Roman customs. There were certain concessions that were made for the Jews because Judaism was considered an ancient religion. Um, so he would be able to be both a Roman citizen and a follower of Judaism. That wouldn't necessarily be a problem. No, he wouldn't be expected to do that. I mean, they, they, they would hope he would do it, but he wouldn't have to do it. Yeah. Um, that's right. Okay, so, so what Paul says is, look, you know, you're, you're thinking of taking on the law. Are you really ready to follow the whole law? Um, because if you add anything to the gospel, then, the, then you're saying the gospel isn't enough. And if you add anything to the cross as a requirement for salvation, then you're saying the cross isn't enough. And then Christ died for nothing. Are you really ready to say that? Either Christ is sufficient or He is not. And then the proof is, did you receive the Holy Spirit by the works of the law or by believing in Christ? Alright. 1 Corinthians then is also written from Ephesus, now about the year 55. And we find out, if you read 1 Corinthians carefully, you'll notice this is really not 1 Corinthians. What? <laughs> this is not the first letter 
Paul has written to the Corinthians. It's the first one we have, so we call it 1 Corinthians, but there's been some correspondence already. And any time you read Paul's letters, it's like hearing only one half of a phone conversation, right? Because questions are being asked that he's answering, but you don't get to hear the question. You never get to read their letters. What we do understand, though, is that in Corinth, the community is divided. It's divided theologically. Um, Some people are more into philosophy and Greek thought, and others are more into Jewish thought. It's divided along social class lines. Most likely, the rich people are the ones who are more into Greek thought and philosophy. The poor people are more into the Jewish thought. Um, And so we meet some new opponents of Paul who are kind of the polar opposite of the Judaizers. If the Judaizers were saying, you got to be all Jewish to be Christian, the people on the other end are incorporating elements of paganism in their Christianity. In fact, if the Judaizers are Jewish Christians, these other folks are probably pagan Christians, pagans who have converted to Christianity and who are... um, incorporating elements of Greco-Roman philosophy and and pagan worship in their Christianity to an extent that Paul is not comfortable with this. And so we're going to see him talk about the superstition of worshiping angels and of believing um, things like Jesus was only a phantom and um, denying the resurrection. So Paul is going to go into great detail about the resurrection. And it even seems that these, these two factions that are forming in Corinth are starting to align themselves with two different Christian apostles. The lower class Jewish thinking folks are claiming Paul as their hero and the upper class um, Greek thinking folks are claiming Apollos as their hero. And Paul is very worried that it's going to become a question of loyalties, Paul versus Apollo, Apollos. Uh, not necessarily Christ versus Caesar, Christ versus the pagan gods. By the way, this is St. Apollos, um, or at least his holy card. Um, and uh, so there's nothing wrong with Apollos, don't get that idea. But uh, Paul doesn't want it to become a case where it's, you know, people are, are factioning out based on their favorite apostle. And in this particular case, it appears that Apollos may have been very polished. He may have been kind of a philosopher Christian who was um, a good speaker. And in the Greco-Roman world, packaging is everything. So if someone's a good speaker, you would normally assume that the content of what they're saying is good too. If someone's not a good speaker you would normally assume that the content of what they're saying is no good. And Paul's trying to diffuse that and say, wait a minute, you know, content and, and eloquence are two different things. So don't assume that, you know, if just because I may not be as eloquent as Apollos, don't assume that what I'm saying is any less valid. So again, giving his resume, um, bolstering his own reputation and his own authority. We also get in 1 Corinthians what, what we call the body ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is what we believe about the church. And um, the church as the body of Christ. 
and the unity of the church as one body with many members. Um, here's our Holy Father celebrating the Eucharist. And I picked this picture because I talk about this in reading the early church fathers too, so you're going to get to read this. But in the early church, the church itself, I mean, look, you can't go down the street and see a church, right? A church is not a building. A church is a concept. And yes, it's people, it's the, it's the, the community of the baptized, but it's more than that. It's the people who gather around the table of the Eucharist. And so the church itself becomes defined as the table. The church is the table. And so it's no coincidence that the church as people, we are called the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ who gather around the table of the body of Christ. You are what you eat. You eat the body of Christ you become the body of Christ. And so this is, this is an early concept of what the church is. And so that when Paul talks about who is the church then, the fact that we sit around one table and we are one body means that we are all equal at that table. And so we're going to get Paul saying things like, there is no more Jew or Greek. There is no more male or female. There is no more slave or free. Why? Because we are all one, and we are all equal at the table. Now, here in this case, in 1 Corinthians, he talks about when one suffers, all suffer. When one rejoices, all rejoice. But, in Corinth, these divisions between the people are creating divisions at the table. And that is the worst kind of division as far as Paul is concerned. The rich people are showing up at 3, 4 in the afternoon with their you know good food, they are eating it all, they're getting drunk, and the people who have to work for a living are showing up after sunset for their potluck. And if you, know, if you don't have a pot, you're out of luck because there's no food left and the rich people are drunk. So what's that all about? That's disrespecting the body. It's disrespecting the church as the body of Christ. And if we assume that there's a Eucharist involved, it's also disrespecting the body of Christ in the Eucharist as well. So, so that's 1 Corinthians, at least as much as we have time for today. Um, from Ephesus, Paul goes on uh, through the cities uh, here, up, back up to Macedonia, the coast of uh, there north of Greece. And there he writes... Do I have Macedonia? No, I don't. There he writes 2 Corinthians. Now, 2 Corinthians is written in about the year 56, but 2 Corinthians may not be all one letter from beginning to end. What we know of as 2 Corinthians, many scholars are saying, is compiled from fragments of several of Paul's letters. And there's different theories about this. Um, and it's, for our purposes, it's not really too necessary to worry about that because um, it's still Paul. But... Uh, here we have another letter or bits of another series of letters between Paul and the believers in Corinth. And Paul admits in this letter that he was hard on them in the last letter. But they did repent and they did, tur- they did turn themselves around. 2 Corinthians also includes a mention of a collection for the Jerusalem church. So now as Paul is going around, he is taking up a collection for the Christians in Jerusalem who are poor and in need of of basic necessities. 
it's going to be when he goes to Jerusalem to deliver that money that he gets arrested. So that's just a little spoiler alert there, a little foreshadowing. Um, One of my favorite bits of 2 Corinthians, I'll just throw this out there, is when he talks about the ministry of reconciliation in, in 2 Corinthians 5. And it's really, you know, he uses we like he could be just talking about the apostles. We have this ministry. But I also want to extend that to we as in all of us. We have this ministry of reconciliation. God has been reconciled to us in Christ. God reached out to us in reconciliation. Now it's our turn to reach out to others and encourage them to be reconciled to God in Christ. And so this is what being a Christian is about, extending this ministry of reconciliation. And I know you all have you know, negative thoughts in your head about TV preachers. And when I say the word evangelism, this is why you know, Catholics prefer the word evangelization. Because it doesn't sound as bad as evangelism, right? Because if I say to you, evangelist, well, you know what you think of. You think of the guy on TV uh, begging for money, right? So if you're you're not comfortable with the concept of evangelism or even evangelization, think of it this way. Think of it as the ministry of reconciliation. Encouraging people to be reconciled to God through Christ. And, um, And Paul says that when we are reconciled to God... We are created anew. We are new creatures or a new creation. So the the end result of our commitment to Christ is that we are a new creation. This is the same thing that John calls the new birth, being born again. And I know that phrase has sometimes a negative connotation as well. But it's the same thing. This is exactly what they're both talking about. All right, after Macedonia, Paul goes on to Greece and spends three months in Greece. And it is from Corinth now. So he goes back to Corinth. He's been writing with them. Now he goes back there. It's from Corinth that he writes the letter to the Romans in about the year 57. Now he has not been to Rome yet. So most of these people he does not know. He's not writing like as if he's their bishop per se, right? He's writing as someone who, again, kind of has to assert his own authority. Here's why you should believe what I'm saying. Um, So that means that the letter to the Romans is not necessarily as situational because he may not be addressing specific issues in Rome. Um, And so the letter is more sweeping in scope. It's longer and uh, covers some broad topics. We do find out in the letter to the Romans that Paul hopes to get to Rome and then go on to Spain. We don't know. We know he got to Rome. We know he died in Rome. We don't know if he ever got to Spain. We'll talk about that later. We also know, I mean, the the tradition is that Peter um, is in Rome already by this time. But there's no indication of that in the letter to the Romans, which is kind of strange. But anyway, according to the tradition... Peter um, got to Rome as early as the year 42, but then he was in Jerusalem in in the year 50. Now he would be back in Rome by this time. So again, according to our tradition, Peter is usually given the title as the first bishop of Rome. Um, But it's not as though Paul's letter to the Romans is addressed to Peter. So uh, it's hard to know exactly what's going on there. But Paul is addressing some important issues in the letter to the Romans. The theme of the letter is in chapter 1. And, you know, again, it's, it's a kind of a dichotomy here between good and evil, right? An either or. And 
in this at this point he says just like sin is a force working against you the gospel is a power the gospel is power and it is faith in the gospel is powerful and so he's he's kind of continuing the theme of the letter to the galatians here in you know law versus faith because law can only point out your sin but faith gives you access to the power of the gospel um, the law can only condemn, but faith can save. Um, and, and so we, we get this concept of faith in Paul. Now we talk about faith like we all know what it means and like, you know, it's, it's obvious. But this is a Pauline concept, faith. Because in the Gospels, the same concept is referred to by Jesus as repentance, turning, um, in John, it's referred to as accepting, accepting Christ, receiving. Um, it's all the same concept, but Paul prefers to refer to it as faith. Having faith means confessing Christ as Lord. So it's not what you know, it's who you know, um, and that who is Christ. Now, we find out in Acts that there's a plot against Paul's life. And um, Paul goes back through Macedonia with Timothy. And so if you can see the map here, back through Macedonia, getting back to Troas, he is, they are joined by Luke. Uh, so we're going to get another we section, right? Luke is writing in the first person. Um, and, and, and Luke here says, when we gathered together to break bread. Now, you should know that when you, hear, when you read break bread, we're talking about the Eucharist. It's not just they had a meal together. Um, and when we get to, into the second century, you're going to read an early description of liturgy that includes the Eucharist. It's very interesting because, you know, in the second century, we already have a description of an order of liturgy that sounds almost exactly like what we do in the Mass. Um, and so you'll read that later. Um, but, uh, but here it says, they gathered again at midnight where Paul lectured. And this is the scene where the poor guy falls asleep and falls out the window. And his name is Eutychus, which means in Greek, good fortune. <laughs> he falls asleep and he falls out the window and of course uh, he's healed. So Paul goes back to Ephesus. And again, if you're looking on the map, Ephesus is here uh, on the coast. And there he meets with the elders of Ephesus. Now, the text says elders, but that's the same word for priests or pastors. And um, so sometimes in, in the early church writings, the, the term can refer to sort of that next generation of church leaders whom the apostles appointed and commissioned to succeed them. So like if Paul, for example, leaves Timothy someplace to run the church there and he goes on, Timothy's an elder. Technically, he's a, in, in essence, this is the beginning of the hierarchy where Timothy functions as the priest and Paul functions as the bishop, right? Um, this is the beginning of that, although those terms aren't technical terms yet in the text of the New Testament. Um, so in the New Testament, words like priest and bishop are kind of interchangeable, Pastor, overseer—you know—they're being used interchangeably. But but the, that hierarchy is beginning to form, and so um, and, and so actually in uh, chapter twenty, 
He calls them overseers, which is our word for bishop. Um, it's actually translated guardians in your text. Um, but the word is episkopos, where we get our word episcopal, or referring to the bishop. So again, you can see that the words for priest and bishop are interchangeable here, but it means that you know these are the pastors whom the apostles chose. The apostles are, are itinerant. They're moving around, and they're choosing pastors, local pastors, to stay in one place and lead the church in those places. So, you know, the year is 57-ish now, right? And the hierarchy is just beginning to develop. Uh, In chapter 20, we also get an interesting thing. Uh, We get a saying of Jesus that's not in the Gospels. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul has heard this somewhere and repeats it, but it's not in the Gospels that that we have anywhere. Um, Now, the one that, that goes, um, cleanliness is next to godliness. Yeah, that's not in the Bible anywhere. So, in case you were worried about that one. But this one's in the Bible. It's just not in the Gospels. Um, okay, so then Paul gives his farewell to the Ephesians. And it's, it's kind of his last farewell. He is going up to Jerusalem. Now, who else went up to Jerusalem, got arrested there? Jesus, right? So there's a definite parallel here between Jesus' destiny and Paul's destiny. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And by the way, up to Jerusalem doesn't, doesn't have anything to do with what direction you're traveling. Jerusalem's on a hill. And Jerusalem is the holy city. So you always go up to Jerusalem no matter where you're coming from. So Jesus went up to Jerusalem and got arrested. And you know that story. Paul is going up to Jerusalem and he will be arrested there too. And so we get another farewell at Tyre, which is uh, here on the coast. Paul is heading to Jerusalem uh, to deliver the offering that was taken. The Holy Spirit seems to be delaying Paul's trip to Jerusalem, though we don't exactly know why. Um, Paul stays at the house of Philip the Evangelist. Here's his rookie card, um, St. Philip. He was one of the seven. He's described as one of the original deacons along with Stephen. And he's described as having four daughters who were prophets of the church. Now this is interesting, and I've talked about this before, because prophecy as an office of the church is going to be phased out. And this is actually part of that bigger question that we were talking about earlier about the role of women in the church. So you'll read about that in in the book, Reading the Early Church Fathers. Um, Prophets, especially women prophets, are not going to last as an official office of the church partly because a, a group, a faction later will, um, will draw attention to that as a potential problem. Um, but notice the, the daughters of Philip are described as unmarried. This is going to be part of uh, you know, a later belief that uh, celibacy is sort of an enhancement to spirituality, especially if prophecy is part of that spirituality. We'll probably talk about that more later, but you can already see Uh, hints of that in the text. Because some people in the early church believed that celibacy was was required for spiritual gifts. Now that's not going to be the mainstream view, but there are going to be some people in the early church who are going to argue that all Christians should be celibate. If you're not celibate, you're not a Christian. Now again, this is not the mainstream view, obviously. But there are going to be factions on the fringe of the early church who are going to argue that you know Christianity means celibacy. 
And to accept Christ means renouncing marriage. We'll read some of those documents. They're very interesting. They're fun to read because they're, they're stories. But anyway, um, that's going to sort of springboard from where we are here. Well, yeah, like, like some of the other heretics did. Yeah, right, right. They, they don't last and you can see why, right. Okay, I'm almost done here. I know it's time to quit, but give me a couple more minutes. Um, we, uh, we meet another prophet, Agabus, who gives us this sort of prophetic, very Old Testament, old school prophetic object lesson about the coming arrest of Paul. He ties himself up and says, this is going to be uh, how Paul's going to be arrested. Here's a painting of, this is Agabus here, he's tied his wrists and his feet. Um, and, you know, there, there's a similar visual prophecy actually about Peter in John's Gospel. Jesus says to Peter, when you are older, you will stretch out your hands. Someone will bind you and bring you where you do not want to go. And then Jesus, and then, and then Peter gets crucified later. That's in John chapter 21. So anyway, Paul goes up to Jerusalem. He meets with uh, the elders there. Paul is asked to participate in a Nazarite vow, which this is just a Rastafari who wears dreadlocks, but uh, this is what would happen if you never cut your hair. Um, the Nazarite vow is just, it's just to show faithfulness toward the old covenant. And if Paul participates in it, then that's a way of sort of demonstrating that he's not trying to throw out Judaism. Because that's what people were saying. They're saying Paul's trying to throw out Judaism and replace it with this other thing. So by participating in this vow, uh, it's a way of him saying he's not trying to throw out Judaism at all. Um, So Gentiles may convert, but for Jews, it's not a conversion to something else. They don't leave their Judaism behind. Um, They just gain a new perspective. There's another rumor floating around that Paul had brought Gentiles into the temple. This is a drawing of the of the temple uh, grounds, and this is the court of the Gentiles here. So this is as far as the Gentiles could go. Here's the the court of the women. This is as far as the women could go. And in here, only Jewish men, right? So the rumor was that Paul had brought Gentile men in here. He hadn't. um, But again, this is all part of that that charge against him that he's he's dismantling Judaism um, by doing these different things. And so uh, this is a model of the temple. I thought that's kind of cool looking. Um, so an angry mob forms. Paul is arrested. The tribune of the guard, the tribune of the cohort, uh, is a Roman official. A cohort is a thousand soldiers. The tribune of the cohort is like the, the sergeant or over those thousand soldiers. And um, he had to arrest Paul literally to prevent him from being lynched. And so Paul is put in chains, mostly for his own protection. And we're out of time, so I think we're going to stop there with the arrest of Paul. Now, your assignment for next week is to read the rest of the book of Acts. And if you have time, read the so-called prison epistles, the letters he wrote from prison. Um, Probably prison in Rome, but this is Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Uh, And so, again, I know it's a lot of reading. If you don't have time to do it all, that's okay. But if you do, you'll be able to put these letters in context. And uh, so that's all we have time for. Thanks for your patience, and I will see you next week.